Welcome. You're listening to Mystic Moon Cafe Radio. And good evening, everyone. Welcome to Mystic Moon Cafe with Wendy, June, and Jacob. Hey, everybody. Woo! Hi. <laughs> you did. You did reverse alphabet. Alphabetation. Uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's an inverse. Reverse alphabet. Yeah. Yeah. It's backwards. Yeah. I, I tried. <laughs> We're not as caffeinated as you think, people. <laughs> oh, I hope everyone had an amazing day today. It's a beautiful day in, in Seattle today. It kind of started off a little cloudy, but now it's just absolutely beautiful. High grass it pollen. Yes, it is here in Mercer <laughs> Island. This is why I think I'm a little foggy-headed, because I took some Benadryl, so I'm like, yeah, everything's oh, great. I feel mm, wonderful. <laughs> that Benadryl. Hmm. Yes, yes. It makes me feel a little better. At least I can breathe a little better now, but um, but everything else. But, uh, so Does it how... make you sleepy? Yes, it makes me very sleepy, so that's why okay. I feel a little like, ah, oh, I'm so relaxed right now. <laughs> <laughs> so nice and relaxed. Very good. So what about you guys? How has your weeks been? You go first, busy. Wendy. Oh, it's been rather busy. Um, just, you know, getting stuff done or trying to anyway. Oh, that's cool. Mm-hmm. Cool. Organization, getting things, medical things taken care of and always fun, right? Oh, <laughs> yes. True. <laughs> What about you, Jake? Well, I had an interesting day in yeah. that um, I work for a big tech company that shall go nameless. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> you know, we do these like informational interviews. If you're interested in checking out a job in a different department, you know, there's no shame in it. You can go ahead and do it. And I went over and I'm talking to who would be my boss if I was interested and the job description fit a T for what I did um, a couple of years ago before I joined this company and I'm going through and I'm talking and we are just not on sync whatsoever and so at the getting like two-thirds of the way through the overall meeting it was only like 40 minutes long I had to ask you write this job description because what you're talking about isn't anything that's listed here <laughs> oh <laughs> yeah uh awkward very seinfeld right mm-hmm. right and, <laughs> and uh it it turns out they were just looking for like a master scheduler like a big <laughs> project manager and i'm just like okay you don't put in like web development yeah. Video hosting, all this website stuff that I like to do. If you just need someone. Want somebody the program manager. Yeah, do program manage budgets, prioritization of tasks, meeting, you know, schmoozing big wigs to get funding <laughs> for your projects, you know, stuff like that. Mm, nice. And um, But she's like, but you sound perfect for this other group. So she gave me the three contacts. Um, oh, cool. So that, I mean, it was still fruitful, right? Just, well, hopefully. Just yeah. a little weird, just a little weird, but. That was oh, my day. Otherwise, you know, other than grass pollen, it's it's been fine. Wow. <laughs> As we all sniff a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I can tell you, 
I have had something almost every single freaking day, every single night after work. There's work, and then I have to go someplace, do something. It's like I sign up for too many things, and it's just like, oh, crap, how did I do all that? <laughs> but um, but we had a really fun um, overnight investigation on the USS Turner Joy and uh, on Saturday. Oh, I was there. And it, Yes, you were. You were. It was actually for a private a private event. A group had um, asked to reserve it for the night, and uh, but I got to come along because you know my friend Ross is there, and Jacob got to be there because we had another little project too that uh, they were working on, not me. <laughs> we totally wanted you to be there and hold our hands through it. I'm sure you did. <laughs> <laughs> But no, it was really, it was really cool. Um, we had a really fun time and we kind of, um, there, there were three of us, uh, ladies who kind of wanted to just kind of, st- I hate to say ladies, but there were three ladies. If there was another guy there, you know, it would be fine too. I'm just not categorizing us <laughs> because we were ladies. So just to let everybody know. Anyway, we, um, the three of us ladies were in this one room, kind of out of the way from everybody else, um, because there were a lot of walking around going on and everything. So, but it was really cool. There was this one woman who had never ghost hunted or never been a paranormal investigator before, and she was kind of there with her boyfriend. And, um, it was really cool. It was just kind of nice to see someone that was getting excited over everything again. And she was just, and it kind of made me a little more like, oh my gosh, yeah, this is why I love this. You know, love doing, um, you know, being a paranormal investigator. And and uh, I think she kind of renewed me a little bit. So it was it was pretty awesome. But um, but then all this stuff. And um, I kind of made the mistake of signing up for this lecture series. Uh-huh. Um, for October, and I'm going to do my travel on the spooky side lecture, which I haven't Ooh. written yet. And now, uh, as of, I think, today, I now have five appointments. What? Um, set up. That- oh, <laughs> for <fantastic. October. laughs> And so I started to have a little panic because, you know, I don't have anything written yet, so... Oh, I mean, like, we can outline something. It, but it's but... not until October. I have a little bit of time. But, uh, it you know, will it's be... one of those things that, it... you know... Let's talk about investigations that are coming oh. up for the team. Well, I've made up all, I made a list of all the places that, you know, I have investigated and traveled to. So so it's going to be one of these things where, um, you know, I, I'm going to have to cut it down quite a bit because it's going to be like a six hour, um, uh-huh. presentation if I'm not careful, but you know, it's a rule of three to five things per location, you know, yes, three things happen because no. I get really wordy sometimes and I know this. But, uh... Oh, well, do you want me to critically judge and edit? I make PowerPoints for a living. I got to tell you. You know, you know. First, I'll have to have you know Ross kind of look at it because you know he gets jealous about us. Oh, that's right. <laughs> yeah, but I'm I'm the one with the all the uh, fancy image um, that is subscriptions, true. That is true. and I've got the better website. <gasps> <laughs> we won't say anything else. Let's not do that. Oh, we all have. Sudden, uh oh, someone's on probation. <laughs> <laughs> you get this jacob come to my office i'm like whatever (laughs) skype me (laughs) he's like 
no Skype you. No. <laughs> no mixing for your show coming up later in the month. <laughs> so fair. Snap. <laughs> but anyway, that was this is this is my thing. So I'm going to have to start working on this so I can try to talk in public. You know, I do have a, a problem with speaking in front of people. So. You, well, you'll be amazing, and let me know if you want me to video it or make it into a podcast or something like that. No. What? We could do a podcast, girl. We could make that no. a podcast. We could <laughs> make that a podcast. That, actually, we could, absolutely. Yeah. But, but I think, June, if, if it comes down to it and you get too nervous, sing it. Like, uh, you know, like Mel... Yeah, I could do I could do like a little, you know, rock opera with uh with par about paranormal investigation and traveling. Mm. Oh, that would be <laughs> fun. <laughs> Spectral rap. And I went to London. <laughs> I was in the underground. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that was really bad. Whatever. We're here to entertain, right? <laughs> Well, just wait. Give me a quick sec. I have to make sure we get our plug in for Crimson Cloak Publishing. So yes. before we do anything, thank you to yes. Carly for letting us invade your space and take up time on your on your minutes, uh, on your plan, and letting us be our crazy, foolish selves as we talk about ghostly and paranormal things. So thank you, Carly. I'm glad, I'm glad somebody does. Yay! Thank you, Carly. Thank you, Carly. Um, well, let's see. Um, we need to just, just so you know, folks, tonight we will be live conferencing in the United Kingdom with our guest. So it's really early their time. Or so, it's kind of really late. Well, early in the morning, late at night. Would it be early in the morning or late at night? Is it eight hours um, difference? We'll yeah, ask, eight, eight for okay. you. Yep. Mm -hmm. well, oh yeah, sorry, eight for me. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, it's it's two in the morning there. Yep. Oh my goodness, now I feel guilty. I mean, I don't know why. He he does say he likes to stay up late. So yes, okay. he did. Yes. Oh. And I, I double checked just to make yep. sure that everything's uh, good and and copacetic. So. Mm -hmm. He has read the message, so let's see if we could get him on. Yay! Talk amongst yourselves. Oh, all right. Um, hmm. Well. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we, uh, well, I, I guess, you know, you're going to talk about this later, but what is one of your favorite cryptids, Wendy? One of my favorite cryptids? Mm -hmm. you're, you personally. That's, that's, you know, your cryptid in your heart. The dog man. Yeah. From Michigan? Yeah, I think so. Mm -hmm. yep. We're not talking about Ross? <laughs> <laughs> Zing. <laughs> Let's pick on Ross. He's not listening. We know where he is tonight. I'm glad I didn't say that. No, no. Just kidding. I love my Rossi. Guffaw, guffaw, guffaw. Ross, Ross would get all puffed up and, and look like a big giant kitty about to attack, you know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> the dog man. So where, where does the dog man um, come, at, come from? Um, is it the Beast of Bray Road dog man or that is one yeah I, I, Michigan Wisconsin um, the upper upper peninsulas there I guess um, they just I don't know why but they 
they fascinate and and just really intrigue me. I like them, and I want a I want a dogman puppy. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it might not be too bad if you raise it from birth. And, you know, <laughs> very true. Yeah. Well. I don't think that they've ever attacked anybody, just their mere appearance and oh. overall uh, size and and actions make them threatening to people, to people, basically. <laughs> <laughs> they scare the crap well, out of people, but they don't actually attack, I don't believe. Yeah, that's, I'm, I mean, everything says it's livestock. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. It's the herding instinct, right? Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. Yes. <laughs> because when you and think we, we are the prey or that's how our minds react, you know that. Yeah, yeah, but I mean on on the subject of dogmen, I mean, they yes. don't really attack people unlike a werewolf. But if you remember, werewolves are really good at like tearing people apart. But you don't really hear about them snapping femurs and sucking bone marrow out or anything like that. No. You just hear them. You know? true but they would be fully capable i'm pretty sure <laughs> oh for sure yeah but it maybe it's just because oh, you're kind of walking upright i'm kind of walking upright we got opposable thumbs yep you know you can... just yeah. like i gotta tell you when i see like a chimpanzee or gorilla like the first thing i i do not think mm, i wonder if that's going to be good with the carolina mustard barbecue like it doesn't yeah, no, come into my head whatsoever <laughs> to do that <laughs> Yeah, I just, yeah, I never had the inkling that, uh, hmm, I wonder what that ape tastes like on I know, you know I'm just butt. like, you know, the DNA is too a similar, I just can't, <laughs> can't do it. You know. I know, but, you know, I think, you know, I hate to be, I hate to follow the crowd, I'm one of these people that always hates to follow the crowd, I don't like to do what everybody else does, <laughs> but I have to say, my all-time favorite cryptid would be the Loch Ness Monster or Nessie. Mm. And when I went out to Loch Ness and um, I was on the the Uruquart Castle um, ruins that's right on Loch Ness, okay. you don't know how much I was like standing right there scanning the water, scanning the water. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, I see a branch and go, oh my gosh! And then I was like, oh. <laughs> Well, um, Rich, uh, our guest, when when he arrives, you can you can grill him about Loch Ness and Nessie, and um, the, uh, he writes the quite a bit about it. Mm-hmm. That is true, yeah. And several of the other locks up there, and they're monsters. Yeah, which you don't really hear about so much. They get you definitely don't. get overshadowed by Nessie, at yes. least from a North American perspective. We don't know in Scotland and England and Wales and Ireland. Maybe Nessie is the bunk one to them, and the others are more legit. We we haven't really, I haven't really heard a different angle. Um, right, right. Though most of the Brits I've known are really into bl- phantom black dogs. You know, uh, oh, was it Black I Chuck? Think they're, I like think the they're related to the dog man, personally. Mm. That's that's my my theory. Mm-hmm. I like the Grimm in Harry Potter. Uh, <laughs> Well, <laughs> yes, exactly. Okay. Yes, <laughs> and they usually portend, you know, disasters or, um, or their warnings for something. Or like other. a little, a little furry Mothman. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you know that whole Mothman thing. Um, I guess I should read more about it. I thought he was like maybe an interdimensional harbinger of doom. I mean, some people say he's yes. a ghost. Some yes. say he's something else. I don't. Or an alien, 
Yeah. I, I don't personally subscribe to the demonic side of, of well, any of these creatures. I, mm-hmm. I just don't. I I think that that's just it, something scares you, so you need to demonize it and mm-hmm. call it a demon. Like most people do, yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yes. I was going to say, on my side, I when it comes to cryptids, and I, don't, I wouldn't call it a cryptid, though. It's more like a cr- cursed human. But I'm a big fan of Wendigo. Wendigos. But not like the kind that's 12 feet tall with the massive antlers knocking down trees in the forest. But, you know, the crazy zombie-like thing that wants to eat human flesh. Right, right. But it's easily confused with another. um, And this wouldn't be a cryptid. This would be a revenant. Like the Uh, the vampire type? Well, so there's there's another spirit um, in Chippewa, Ojibwa, and I hope I pronounced Ojibwa correctly. Um, they're called Baycocks and these are skeletal warriors that rise from the ground and kill, um, like army of darkness when they had the sword fights with the, yeah, yeah. It's, it's like (laughs) taut skin pulled over a skeleton. I mean, they're, they're not really rotting and they move like the wind They're super fast with their bows, arrows, and hatchets. Um, In some of the legends, they consume the liver of the person they killed. But you have to be disrespectful in order to have. So I guess you would call it like a a revenging revenant or something like that. Because they only go after, you know, if the wolf is the sacred animal, then, and you kill a wolf and a baycock's around the baycock's gonna hunt you and kill you and you won't know you're dead until like you're dead oh wow <laughs> <laughs> and you're like oh damn and you're just like damn i got an arrow in my head oh shit i shouldn't have <laughs> killed that wolf is... how did yeah. this happen yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like my whole life how did this happen mm-hmm. <laughs> oh that's gonna leave a mark yeah <laughs> Um, well, um, Jake, would you like to uh, maybe introduce our guest? And uh, I believe he's ready to call in whenever we're ready. Yeah. Um, so I've got the link I sent to him mm-hmm. to click to join us. Okay. Very good. Nice, nice. So um, all he has to do is click that and he'll join. But I have a lengthy bio here. Um, cool. And there will probably be mispronunciations, just so you know, because there's... <laughs> Snicker too loud, Wendy. Yeah, I'm, I'll try I'm like, drag me through the mud. I don't care. Okay, here we go. <clears throat> Let me get into radio voice. Please do. Me, 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 me. Okay. <laughs> Richard Freeman is a full-time cryptozoologist. He searches for and writes about unknown animals. He has hunted for creatures such as the Yeti, a dark-haired giant upright ape in North India, the Mongolian death worm, a personal favorite, <laughs> A much feared burrowing reptile of the Gobi, a giant the giant anaconda, a monster constricting snake in South America, the Ninki Nanka, a dangerous dragon like beast from the swamps of West Africa. That one I will have lots of questions about. The Almasti, that is Richard. Hi Richard. Hi. I'm I'm in the middle of your bio here, just a sec, okay? <laughs> um Let's see here. Where was it? Okay. Now, this is one of the words I'm going to screw up. Okay. Orang pendek, an upright walking ape in Indonesia. 
The Naga, a giant crusted serpent in Indochina. The Ghoul, a relic hominin from Tajikistan. And the Tasmanian Wolf, a flesh-eating marsupial in Tasmania. He is the zoological director at the Center for Fordian Zoology. This is the world's only full-time mystery animal research organization. It is based in North Devon. That would be Cornwall, England, I believe. So, Richard, if there, if you're there, how are you, sir? I'm fine. Yes, I'm fine. Uh, Devon and Cornwall are separate um, counties. They're next to each other. Okay. Oh, well, welcome. 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 Hi. Thanks for having me. Our pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you for for joining us. Staying up so late and joining us. This yes. Week. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I hope we don't keep you up. <laughs> Well, I mean, you're going to be up till 4 a.m. at your time, so. <laughs> but, Richard, uh, lead-off question for you is, could you tell us more about the Center for Fortean Zoology? Well, the Center for Fortean Zoology has been about, oh, goodness me, for nearly 30 years now. It uh, was first started by a guy called John Downs, and um, he was a mental health nurse. He'd had enough of his, his job, it was, you know, wearing him down so he he, he, he took retirement he, he retired from the job and with the money he got he set up this center for fortean zoology which uh, is the only organization of its kind in the world and it started quite humbly um uh, publishing a small magazine called animals and men but from there it's grown bigger and bigger and bigger and now it's an international organization uh with branches in the us canada Australia, New Zealand, and uh, we go all around the world searching for mysterious creatures, trying to find evidence of them. Uh, we publish books, uh, we still publish the magazine Animals and Men, and we have a yearly conference called The Weird Weekend. Oh, okay. When when do you have the conference? I'm sure a lot of our listeners would wanna would wanna go. It's in a place called Rixton with Glazebrook, which is just south of Manchester. Okay. Um, it is in April. Uh, it's generally in April. So okay. The next one is April next year. Okay. So plan for next year then. That okay. would be so much fun. And then for the listeners and our viewers in the chat, I just dropped a link to the center so that they can go out and research it for you. Thank you, Jake. No problem. Now, Richard, with, with the center, how would someone go about joining up and getting certified in cryptozoology? Well, there, there's no real certification in cryptozoology. You can't study it at university and get a, a, a degree in cryptozoology. Mm -hmm. um, it comes with experience. <clears throat> so if you wanted to be, become a member of the Center for Fortean Zoology, anybody can do that. You just go to the website and contact John Downs and you can join up. Uh, you get the, the quarterly magazine, which is now online. It was a paper magazine once, it's now gone online. And uh, the rank and file are, of the membership can join in expeditions um, okay. if they can pay their way. There's a guy called Dave Archer, uh, just an ordinary member of the CFZ. He came, came to Sumatra with us <clears throat> on his first day in the jungle. He saw the orang pendek. Oh wow! Since, since that day, he's been all, all around the world with us. Wow! So I totally mispronounced that cryptid. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. Okay. <laughs> um, and then for 
just for some context and background for the listeners, when when did you first get interested in cryptids and strange creatures in general that, that took you down this path? That goes way back to the early 70s. And when anybody asks me, how did I get interested in cryptozoology, I give the same three-word answer. Classic Doctor Who. <laughs> the 1970s... Um, when Doctor, Doctor Who started way back in 1963, it's the longest running and most successful science fiction series ever. Uh, but it peaked in the 70s with John Pertwee and Tom Baker. And it was as much about gothic horror as it was about science fiction. A lot of the stories were set on Earth and contemporary times, so the monsters and creatures were more compelling and frightening. So you had giant maggots crawling out of slag heaps and whales, so you had Lovecraftian tentacled aliens that could animate plastic and turn children to toys or chop room dummies into killers. You had intelligent marine reptiles that evolved at the time of the dinosaurs and now they've woken up from their millions of years of, of slumber, of hibernation, and they, they want to wipe out this upstart ape that has, has uh, taken over their planet. And giant rats in Victorian sewers gnawing people's legs off. It was brilliant. It was a million miles away from the absolute excrement that is being passed off as Doctor Who today. Uh, now it's just woke garbage where every single episode, though they're not interested in science fiction or horror, they just want to ram political correctness down your throat and it's a travesty and shame on the stinking BBC for doing it. <laughs> I was going to say, go ahead. first got me interested. And, um, you know, I, I, I found out later that, you know, some of these creatures were based on allegedly real things like the yeti and the Loch Ness monster and things like that um, uh, when i left school i became a zookeeper i went into training and then i became the head of reptiles at a, a major british zoo worked with crocodiles alligators snakes lizards porpoises so on and then um one day i i found this little magazine it was in a a bizarre museum sadly the museum is no longer with us uh, called Potter's Museum of Curiosities, um, weird old Victorian museum, and they had a little magazine called Animals and Men, which wasn't as rude as it sounded. And uh, I, I subscribed to this magazine. It was about cryptozoology, very interesting, and it was put out by this outfit called the Centre for Fortean Zoology. So I started to write to them. I was a student in Leeds in the north of England at the time, and uh, then I started writing articles for them, and then. I was invited down to become the zoological director. So uh, I just, you know, started to write to this organization and then wrote, wrote a few articles and they were so impressed. They said, you know, come on down, be our zoological director. So I moved down to the southwest of England. And since that day, I've been on every continent except Antarctica, hunting creatures like the Tasmanian wolf, the giant anaconda, the yeti, the orangutan, and many, many more. Mongolian death worm, all sorts of things. Wow. Did you have a favorite uh, continent that you uh, visited or a favorite creature on a certain continent? The, the Tasmanian wolf is one of my favorites. It's a flesh-eating marsupial that sort of looks like a wolf or a dog but has a, a, a long, a long kangaroo-like tail and stripes on the hindquarters. And it's actually it's, it's more closely related to... Uh, kangaroos than it is to dogs or, or oh. anything like that. It's, it's a c case of convergent evolution where two 
entirely unrelated species, often on opposite sides of the world, evolve to look like each other because uh, they're filling the same ecological niche. And the Tasmanian wolf in Australia and Tasmania filled the same ecological niche as the placental wolf of Europe. And it evolved to look very similar. Now, it was supposed to have been wiped out in the mid-1930s, the last one dying, I think, in 1936 in Hobart Zoo. But since then, there have been over 4,000 sightings of this, this creature. Wow. And it's been called the, the healthiest extinct animal you will ever meet. And <laughs> I've been I've three times now on the track of it. I've interviewed witnesses, and uh, I'm convinced that it's still around because the, the, the western part of Tasmania is just complete wilderness. Tasmania itself is about the size of Ireland, but yeah. human population is less than half a million. Mm. And they're mainly in two cities. You get out to the west of Tasmania, and you get utter wilderness. Oh wow! Yeah, I've been to I've been to Tasmania before, and it's gorgeous, and it has massive lavender fields in the middle of it, so it <gasps> really? smells amazingly well. <laughs> wow! So, so Richard, have you traveled to all of these places, or or at least some or all of these places that uh, that you found the creatures and stories? Oh yes, I've been to yeah. Uh, all over the place, Tasmania, Sumatra five times on the trail of Orang Pendek, Guyana looking for the giant anaconda, Mongolia wow. for the worm, Northern India for the Yeti, Russia for the Almasti, the, the Russian wild man, Tajikistan for the Ghul, which is another type of hominin. Wow. Um, where else? Oh, uh, all, uh, all over the place. Oh my I gosh. I lose track sometimes. <laughs> I guess I should interject here and we did a poll and asked our readers which cryptid they were most interested in hearing you talk about and it was the Yeti Yeti now the Yeti is possibly one of the most misunderstood cryptids going if I were to ask you what color do you think the Yeti is what would you say uh, brown in the summer white in the winter or just it's I was thinking white, but then again, I could be thinking like or Yeti, uh, yeah. abominable from yeah. Uh, Rudolph. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know how many sightings of white Yeti have ever been reported in recorded history, as far as I'm aware? No, sir. How many? Two. All oh my others, gosh! Wow. Okay. Those are are range from a sort of reddish brown, auburn colour, through chestnut brown to black. Hmm. That are also. It's, there's a false notion that it's wandering around in the snowfields. It all comes from a mistranslation of a Sino-Tibetan name for it, Nito Kangmei, which means abominable man of the rocks. And it was mistranslated as abominable man of the snows. So we have this false notion of a white bird animal wandering around in the snowfields. So there's nothing for it to eat. The reports come from the forests, the valleys and the forests. And there seems to be more than one type. Uh, in Asia, there seems to be three distinct types. There's a very small one that's about a metre tall, um, light brown fur. Then there's a, a man-sized one, which can move both upright and lope along on all fours. And then there's the big one, which is the one we're most familiar with, the massive uh, upright one, which has dark brown to black fur. And they all seem to be distinct species. They're never seen together. 
Uh, when I was in India, uh, the local name for it there is Monday Barung, which means the forest man. And we went into the hill, to the Garrow Hills and talked to the hill tribes there. And they described an animal about three metres, 10 feet tall, looking very like an upright gorilla. And oftentimes they would see it and it would shake the vegetation and roar at them. And that the witnesses were very scared. But on, on one occasion, one man said he saw one make a huge nest, rather like a gorilla does. And he, he watched it. And he said the thing was as, as tall as an elephant, 10 feet tall. Um, this huge muscular ape-like creature that, that made a nest. And he watched it making a nest. Uh, another guy saw a female suckling a young while it was eating bamboo. And the, the, all the, the sightings of it were describing the same animal. They all dovetailed. And this part of northern India, the Garrow Hills in, in the state of Meghalaya, uh, the next state up is Assam, where the Yeti is called Konglang Po. And then if you get further up, you finally get to Bhutan, where it's called Maigor. So there are unbroken sightings all the way through this area, which is mainly mountainous forest. Oh my. That, that's amazing. Um, mm -hmm. Have you seen any personally? I've never seen the Yeti. I've seen the tracks. I saw tracks uh, by a, uh, a forest stream in northern India where the thing had gone along and it seemed to have been pushing over quite large boulders, more than a man could. And it seemed to have been collecting and eating freshwater crabs. And it oh. had left these large man-like tracks they were about 12 inches long but the, the guy that was with us said he's seen ones you know 19 inches long so this was probably a, a sub-adult and they're, they're omnivorous they'll take plant material fruit vegetables roots but they'll also um, kill animals as big as yaks or cows and they, it's, they're said to grasp the horns and twist the neck break the neck oh they will hurl large rocks they'll pick up rocks and it's said that the Yeti carries a rock as a weapon. And it, they can throw rocks with immense force, bigger than any human could lift. They can throw them with immense force and crack the skull of a, of a yak or a cow. Sure. Wow. That, that does that, sound more gorilla-ish than, mm. than, I'm not sure what else. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, we know from the fossil record that there was a giant ape in the area once. About thirty, about three hundred thousand years ago, there was a huge ape called Gigantopithecus, and it's known only for its jaw bones and its teeth. But the shape of the jaw suggests it walked erect, and it was bigger than a gorilla. And there've been estimates that put it at nine to ten feet tall. So the yeti, or the larger kind of yeti, could be a surviving form of Gigantopithecus. But more recently, from Bhutan, um, there was a, a man called Mark North, who's a a um, TV vet, and he okay. yeah he took an expedition out to Bhutan, and they came upon a lake in in the mountains of Bhutan. And they took water samples from it to look for um, something called eDNA, which is environmental DNA. Now, when an animal moves through an environment or drinks from a pool, it, bits of skin come off it often microscopic cells. Mm -hmm. So uh, scientists have now perfected ways of extracting these and seeing what drunk from this lake or what moved through this part of the forest. Now when they got back to Europe, there was a French uh, 
geneticist with this girl, and she looked at the eDNA and they found a, a species of wild goat and a species of wild sheep that were unknown in that particular area, which was fascinating. They also found primate DNA. Wow. And the primate, whatever it was, shared 99% of its genetic makeup, 99% of its DNA with humans. Mm -hmm. So that's more closely related to humans than chimpanzees. So there is a large unknown primate there we know from the eDNA. Oh, wow. That is fascinating. Oh, his name, sorry, his name was Mark Evans, not Mark North. I beg your pardon, that was an error. And my, the, the, the vet's name was Mark Evans. And the, he did a big documentary, it's called uh, Lost Kingdom of the Yeti. If you can find it online, it's absolutely fascinating. And that shows the uh, where they found this pool and how they got the eDNA. And at the end, the geneticist is saying this thing is, is shares 99% of its DNA with human beings. So that's an unknown species. Oh, wow. Interesting. Very, very interesting. Did you ever um, watch the American show with Josh Gates, um, Destination Truth? From time to time. I was, like, I was wondering if you, if you saw any of his, because I know there's, there's a lot of the, the creatures that uh, have, are in your book he has tried to see if he can find evidence of or tried to find. And uh, it's, it was really fascinating, a lot, of, a lot of things, you know. Of course, they made it, you know. Americanized funny, but uh, but it, it was pretty fun. Is he would go to these amazing places, and he'd seem to spend two or three days there, and he seemed to sort of sneer and laugh at the locals. Yeah, he, that wasn't too good. I didn't like that. That annoyed me. Yeah. That yeah. annoyed me because that's all. Oh, it's a waste of resources. They could have made a good series. With yeah. Exactly. They made it more of kind of a more of a comedy in so many, you know, aspects of it. But uh, you know, I just I just uh I, I like the um I like the, the creatures that, you know, he was trying to look for and things like that. But yeah, I I just thought he was a little too snide with a lot of the locals, you know, when they tell their stories and he would just kind of, you know, give these side glances and things like that. I was like, you know I annoying to be honest. Yeah. Um, it takes Finding these things, unless you're exceptionally lucky, takes a hell of a long time. Uh, oh, yeah. Have you heard of a big cat called the Snow Leopard? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes, yeah. definitely. I think it was the late 60s, early 70s, they went out to try and film snow leopards. They knew they existed, but they'd never been caught on film in the wild. And it took something like six or seven years wow. of, of being on the ground in the Himalayas to finally capture a snow leopard on film. So if you think about something like the Yeti, a large, probably fairly solitary ape, it doesn't move in big troops like gorillas and chimpanzees. It's intelligent, probably more intelligent than any other ape, mm. and it doesn't want to be found. Exactly. You're, it's going to take forever and ever. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. So the, Richard, the question I have for you is because a lot of people confuse like the North American Bigfoot and the Yeti, are they distant relatives? Did someone cross, you know, the Ice Age bridge from 10, 12,000 years ago, or did do you think they developed separately? The, the bigger kind of Yeti and the Sasquatch may be one in the same thing or very, very closely related. Now you get brown bears in North America. You also get them in Europe and Northern Asia. So it could be a similar thing. 
a lot of animals cross that land bridge. Mammoths cross the land bridge. Horses, which originally evolved in America, there millions of years ago, then moved into Asia, became extinct in North America. Um, they crossed back again. Um, all sorts of animals cross the, the land bridge. Mastodons, and finally, early man. Mm -hmm. and it's also interesting to note that we're finding more and more homonyms, the relations of the ancestors of man, not only in the fossil record, but in genetic markers in modern populations of human beings. We already know about Neanderthals. More recently, uh, some finger and toe bones from a cave in Siberia uh, yielded a, a complete um, a complete DNA sample of a, of a new species, uh, uh, the Denisovans, which were completely unknown, and they've just found some jaw bones of them in the Himalayas, and they look uh, much bigger and more robust uh, than Neanderthals. We have Homo floresiensis from the island of Flores in Indonesia, and that only stood a metre tall. It was, uh, and it seems to have been more closely related to Homo habilis than Homo erectus. Originally, it was thought to be a dwarf island form of Homo erectus, which we know left Africa and spread out through Asia mm -hmm. and into Europe. Mm -hmm. But this oldest African species, Homo habilis, which was supposed to have died out nearly two million years ago, it now seems that that left Africa as well and had its own lineage. And Homo floresiensis is half a world away from Africa and, and nearly two million years away in time. There are new, um, new hominins uh, from a place called Red Deer Cave in China, a couple of new hominins that haven't even been given names yet, and they look like they were more closely related to Homo habilis. And um, there's recently been another Indonesian find um, on another island of what seems to be another one of these archaic, weird uh, relatives of man. But it's not just bones, um, it's also genetic markers because there are a number of populations, um, some of them on mainland Asia, some of them uh, in the the Philippines area, some of them around New Guinea and also in sub-Saharan Africa where they have modern populations have genetic markers suggesting that they interbred with unknown species of hominins that we don't even have the fossils for yet. We've just got this small part of the genetic makeup in, in modern human populations that it owes to interbreeding millions of well, hundreds of thousands maybe millions of years ago with these archaic um, unknown species so it's not beyond the, the bounds of possibility that some of these creatures or their descendants are still around today wow that's fantastic and the the uh, the science behind it all the, the dna you know things that they can do these days uh, and and help identify what they're finding that's just it all works together quite well. The eDNA is going to be the key, I think. That's the thing that's going to, mm -hmm. going to crack the problem. <laughs> Man, this is great. Um, okay, uh, since it was a question when I was reading the book. Um, now, uh, what are your thoughts on how creatures such as the Lao, uh, L-A-U, and 
uh, Montana's uh, flathead lake monster can be shot at several times, but appear to not be affected by the bullets. Um, and I, I can only assume that whoever was shooting did actually hit them. What are your thoughts on that? Because these are big, powerful animals, mm -hmm. Lao is a gigantic snake-like creature from the swamps of Sudan. Now, Sudan is, is such a dodgy, politically dodgy, dangerous place that no one's really ventured deep into the, the, the Sud swamps uh, in, in decades. But back in the last century, uh, explorers brought back these tales from the natives of this immense yellowish-coloured serpentine creature that they called the Lao, that mm -hmm. they were convinced existed and they were terrified of it. I think it's just the sheer size and bulk of the animal involved. And if it has scales, thick scales, it's going to be hard to kill. Oh, wow. I'm thinking probably like an alligator or, or crocodile, just that thick that of thick skin. skin. Yeah. So, so Richard, what, what percentage of these creatures would you consider dangerous? Or have you been stalked or hunted on your all your numerous adventures and fact-finding journeys? Yeah, I've been attacked by a cobra, stalked by a cobra. <gasps> oh, man. Fallen down an ice crevasse, fallen oh. off a cliff, and left hanging onto tree roots like Indiana Jones. Holy crap. <laughs> I've been caught in a tornado. In oh. the Mongolian desert, and found myself looking up into the eye of the of the tornado, like Dorothy in the Wizard of Oz. Oh my gosh! Drivers and most of the the camp equipment spinning round and round about twenty feet in the air. I've been caught in sandstorms. I've been covered in ticks and bees. Oh man! I've had all got all kinds of tropical diseases. I mean, there are people that say, "Oh, uh, the, the Center for Fortean Zoology." The CF said they only do this because they want expensive foot-trolling and holidays. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> holidays, people. And the last time I was out from my Tajikistan, I got the worst dysentery I ever had. And it haunted oh, oh. me for five goddamn weeks. Oh, man. I can, oh, my God. Thank God you're still Thank alive. for modern uh, medicines. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If, you, if you're talking about the creatures themselves, no, I've never felt threatened by any of them. There was one time when I was in um, uh, Russia searching for the Almasti, which is a kind of wild man, bigger than uh, a modern man, but not as massive as the Yeti or the Sasquatch. About okay. seven, seven and a half feet tall, a thick brow ridge, covered in hair. We'll use clubs and rocks, but it can't use fire. It may be an early offshoot of Homo erectus or Homo habilis, but the Russians took it so seriously they actually had a commission to look for it in the Soviet era called the Snowman Commission. And that was back in the 50s. And the commission has just been reopened a couple of years ago. Um, I was out there with uh, some other Brits and some Ukrainians and some Russians. And uh, two of the Russians had actually seen this creature themselves. One of them, a guy called uh, Gregory Panchenko, had seen one whilst he was hiding in a barn from only 10 feet away. And we were staking out an old abandoned farmhouse in the countryside. And it had uh, three rooms in it and then an L-shaped veranda going around the outside. And there'd been sightings of these creatures uh, around there. A few years ago, some shepherds had been standing on the veranda one evening and the door at the end of the veranda opened and a seven-foot almasty was there and it walked along the veranda, picked one of the men up by his shoulders, just moved him out of the way 
walked at the end of the veranda and leapt off. So what we did, we, we put out uh, fruit and honey and red wine and other and meat to try and bait these things mm-hmm. and set up camera traps. Now, several of the witnesses, uh, including Gregory Panchenko, have said that the Almasi makes a weird twittering noise like a bird. And we set these camera traps up and then we just waited in this old farmhouse. Like we were out on the veranda with mm-hmm. our cameras. And then there's a flash. One of the camera traps is gone. And I hear a twittering noise like a bird. And I think, could that be what I think it is? But then there's nothing but silence for hours on end. And it gets to about two o'clock in the morning. And um, I go into uh, one of these rooms with the other guys because we want to get warm around an old stove. An old stove in there, so we want to warm up. And um, one of my friends, uh, Dave Archer, the guy that's with me around day, he falls asleep on a manky old mattress that's in there. And myself and this other cryptozoologist, uh, with me, uh, Adam Davis. We're just sat next to this stove getting warm. Now, in this room, there's a there's a big door. The door's about seven foot, and it's slightly ajar, and there's moonlight and starlight coming in. Now, from outside, we hear this guttural sound, sort of like a bum 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 sort of sound, but very deep. It sounds like something with a big chest and lungs. And I, I said to Adam, did you hear that? And he nods. And something, about 25 seconds after the sound, walks along the veranda. And as it goes past the door that's slightly ajar, it blocks out the starlight and the moonlight up to a height of seven foot. And I said to Adam, I said, there's something out there on the veranda. So we grab our cameras and rush out onto the veranda. And we just find darkness and silence, whatever it was, has disappeared into the night. So we wait up all night and nothing else happens. In the morning, we go and check our uh, camera traps, but all we get is moving vegetation. So, you know, was that an Almastid? We'll never know. Wow. It wasn't a bear because it, a bear would have made more noise and it right. would on its hind legs. If it was a human being, it was an extraordinarily tall one. So who knows? Interesting. Your your stories are fantastic. Yeah. I'm sitting here nodding along. You can't see me, but yeah. I'm, oh, I am too. Wow. <laughs> We're both nodding along with you. And yes, yeah. <laughs> found hair. I mean, I've found so many tracks and handprints and footprints of the orang pendek in Sumatra, dozens of them. And we found some hair, and it was examined by a guy called uh, Lars Thomas from the U- University of Copenhagen. Mm-hmm. from Denmark and he's an expert on mammal hair and he looked at it under the microscope looking at the scale arrangement and and he says that it's an unknown primate it's related to the orangutan but it's not the orangutan it's oh, wow. something unknown to science wow good but at the end of the day what's stopping this what is our main stumbling point is finance this this costs money oh, I yeah. can, I can afford to go out maybe once, if I'm lucky, twice a year for a couple of weeks each time. Mm -hmm. And really, you need to be spending months on end in these places searching for these creatures. And, you know, if we had the money, if cryptozoologists, if good 
um, reliable cryptozoologists had the money, right? Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of those things wouldn't be mysteries anymore because we would have found them. Sure, sure. How long has the term cryptozoologist been around? Um, it was coined uh, in the 1950s by two men, uh, a British scientist, a British zoologist, um, and it's called Ivan T. Sanderson, and a Belgian zoologist called um, Dr. Bernard Heuvelmans. Uh, Heuvelmans wrote the book on the track of unknown animals which was the first major work uh, on cryptozoology. And between them, they coined this term. Very interesting. Um, was I, I bet there was a lot of blowback from regular scientists thinking that, that kind of like Ghostbusters or something, you know, oh, you guys are crazy chasing legends and tales and myths and things. Well, there was, and that there still is. There mm-hmm. still is. Uh, it seems like skeptics are given a free pass they can say and do anything they like because they're skeptics right. yet skeptics cherry pick things to bolster their own arguments mm-hmm. they're as guilty of that as anybody else now the thing about cryptozoology remember is there's no paradigm shift we're not talking about spaceships coming from you know other or the solar system. Right. I was trying to Alpha Centauri or something like the from Star Trek. We're not talk, talking about we're not talking about spirits of the dead mm-hmm. or phantoms or anything. It's just a branch of zoology that deals with animals that are not yet discovered. Right. Mm-hmm. Or, or, or presumed to be extinct, perhaps wrongly. And yeah. big animals are still being discovered. Not so long ago a new species of tapir was found in, in South America. And that's okay. something there's a whole chapter about this in my book about how new animals are, discovered, are being discovered all the time. Once upon a time, it was thought the gorilla was nothing but uh, a hairy bogeyman from the folklore of Africa, a hairy giant that lived in, in the mountains. And, and the African natives would say it would come down from the jungle and kidnap native girls and rape them and tear branches off trees and beat elephants to death with it. And of course, it doesn't do any of those things, but it exists. Mm-hmm. And that's what we call the, the mythalization process. It's where, you know, fantastical um, attributes are given to real animals. Right. Very cool. Do, now, um, I, do you speak of, of several languages or do you have to use um, interpreters when you go? We use interpreters. The, the key to it, the key to it is getting a good local guide. Mm-hmm. And we've had some great guides. In, in Sumatra, we had a guide that sadly passed away now called Sahar Dimas. Um, oh, no. who, who was a, uh, a brilliant tracker in the jungle. And uh, he had lived in the jungle 14 years, and he'd only sort of seen the orang pendek once. Wow. Uh, when we went to South America looking for the giant anaconda, we had a great guy called Damon Corrie, who was the hereditary, hereditary chief of the Eagle Clan Arawak tribe, who was an actual native, uh, a native chief. Um, who's brilliant? So it's it's all down to getting good guides. Mm-hmm. And the guide is just not it's not just about interpretation. It's they set the whole thing up for you, so you hit the ground running. They find witnesses. They organise transport and and cooks and things. Um, people to transport your equipment. Mm-hmm. So the most important person on, on an expedition is the guide. 
Oh, absolutely. And how much equipment do you take with you usually on an expedition? We try to travel light. We take camera traps and we take still cameras and movie cameras. Mm-hmm. And we'll take things for taking samples. We'll take like, um, uh, we'll take alcohol, um, not the drinking. So yeah. <laughs> Maybe I, I'd have to have lots of that on it. But, well, yeah. Yeah, like, stuff that, that, well, if you drink this alcohol, you'd go blind and die. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's not good. Preserving DNA and biological samples. And oh, wow. Things to put the samples in, sample bags and little bottles and things like that. Sure. Try and, try and travel light as much as you can. Trying being the operative word. Yeah, yeah. I know that. And if you're going up mountains and stuff, you get local porters to take your stuff. You don't haul it up there yourself because you've got to get, have your hands free in case something turns up and you've got to whip that camera out of your pocket like a gunfighter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you don't want to miss anything. Nothing at all. Um, well, moving on. Uh, June, uh, I know you love Loch Ness. Would you like to ask about Desi? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I hate to be one of the, you know, millions of people in the crowd, but uh, I've always, uh, Nessie's always been my, my favorite since I was a little girl. And I got to go to uh, Loch Ness and uh, around the, is it Yurkort Castle? Yurkort? 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 Okay, sorry. You know, I was like totally saying that wrong, but uh, it is funny how I, um, I mean, it was just like I was standing there on the castle ruins, just looking at the water, just just trying for a peek. <laughs> it's like, you know, I might be the one where it pops little head, she pops her head up, but uh but it is kind of funny. Uh yeah, I I spent way too much money on Nessie um jewelry and <laughs> I was like, what the hell? <laughs> but um yeah, it was it was really amazing just seeing that area and everything else and then realizing how deep that water is. Um but I know, was it uh, Loch Morar? Is it Loch Morar? Loch Morar. Um, I know it's supposed to be a lot deeper than Loch Ness. And you said yes, creatures deeper, there. Deeper than Loch Ness. It also has a monster. There's a monster report there. And mm-hmm. the thing about Loch Morar is there's no tourist industry there. There's no um, Loch Morar visitor center or right. anything like that. It's just a small village. And one hotel. Now, when I was there, the woman that ran this hotel said, "People see things in this lake, and it never leaves the, never leaves the village." Most of the reports, because the, the locals won't talk about it. And she said that just the year before, uh, a couple of lads from Yorkshire had been on a, um, a fishing holiday, and they rented a boat and they had <coughs> gone out onto Loch Morrow. One of them was looking out, and the other one was operating the tiller at the back. And then they see what they think is a dead tree in the water until their boat comes alongside it. And this 30-foot-long serpentine thing, which they thought was like a log or a dead tree, rears up in a great arch and dives under the boat. And they just turn the boat round, get back to shore, and leave. But I might have walked on the water, but that's me. <laughs> Sighting didn't leave the village. It wasn't publicised or anything. And the guy that rented them the boat, uh, him and his friend, MacDonald and Simpson, their names were, um, one of them's passed away now, I can't remember which one, but in 1969, 
they were out on Loch Morass and they actually collided with it. It came right alongside their boat and bumped into the side of their boat. They think it was completely accidental. And uh, one of them shot at it with a rifle and they said it was about 30 feet long and some greyish green colour. Now, there are also, what most people don't know, there are also sightings from a lake in the north of England called Windermere, Lake Windermere, of a very similar thing. And a few years ago, I was up there investigating that and talking to witnesses. And I talked to one guy who also uh, had seen a very similar creature there. I think it was 1959. And he had been going there with his friends. He was um, in his late teens at the time. <clears throat> and um, every year they go up there kayaking. And this particular year, 59, they were going along like women and something grew alongside their kayaks. And he said he couldn't see the head, he couldn't see the tail, but he could see about a midsection of it that was about 15 feet long, cylindrical, grey-green in colour, with a mm. texture like old leather. And he said whatever it was, it was alive, it was moving. And it's, it eventually overtook them and swam away. And um, when they got to a youth hostel they stayed at, they mentioned to the guy there, is there anything like the Loch Ness Monster scene in here, in, in Lake Windermere? And he looked at them with such disdain that they decided never to mention it again. And it wasn't <laughs> until a modern spate of sightings happened that he came forward and said, look, I've seen something like this years ago. I interviewed this guy and he had no nothing to gain by making up this story. My wow. skeptics will say, I mean, did you read the magazine 14 times at all? I can't say that I have. Mm. There's a magazine called 14 times. There's an article in the, the current edition where it's sort of implying that native people will tell Westerners whatever they want to hear in, <laughs> order, to, in order to get money. Now, I've been all over the world and that is simply not the case. Oftentimes, they'll be amazed that people have come all the way from Britain just to look at this animal that they completely accept. Like I was in, when I was in Russia, the, the witnesses, they couldn't get their heads around why someone had come all the way from England to look for this creature, which to them is no more fa fantastical than a bear or a wolf. <laughs> And when we were in Mongolia, looking for the Mongolian death worm, mm -hmm. um, some of the nomads had travelled miles just to talk to us and tell us what they'd seen. And, you know, they weren't getting paid for it. No. It very reverse. They were, they were going to a lot of trouble just to assist us. The only place where I thought people were um, telling us what we wanted to hear was the Gambia in West Africa, which was a very touristy sort of area. And there, there, there's a creature that's supposed to live in the swamps called the monkey manka. Uh -huh. Yeah, and we came away from there thinking it's probably a demonization of a pre Islamic python worship cult. And it's become sort of a bogeyman. They, they blame anything that goes wrong. Right. If someone gets malaria, it's a curse from the monkey manka. If a, a lorry crashes, it's because the monkey manka crossed the road. In right. And they they have a big touristy um, a tourist kind of thing for that creature too. I'm, I've seen like a a whole bunch of t-shirts and little statues and yeah. <laughs> and there's one guy 
we went on the BBC World Service radio um, and said, and there was a little newspaper article, and I said, well, we're looking for information on the speech of an international. And um, this guy rang us up, and he, he lives at a place called Mandanari, and he said, <coughs> in the swamps in Mandanari, there's a hole, and there's an international in this hole, and if you throw a dog down, the international will come up and devour the dog and kill it. I said, well, I'm not throwing a dog down. I love dogs. <laughs> We'll go there and, and I might show a few conservatives down there. Um, we'll go there uh, and, and take a look at this this hole. If you can show us where it is. And he says, well, how much will you pay pay me? I'm going to be risking my life doing this. Will you pay me 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 pounds? And no, no, <laughs> absolutely not. Oh, my. <laughs> well, that's the only place in the whole wide world that I've been to where people were after money. Everywhere else, they were either genuinely surprised that you would be interested in this thing, hmm. which they just accept, or they just wanted to help you. Oh, wow. Interesting. <laughs> uh, is there anywhere that you wouldn't go back to to uh, search? The Gambia. Yeah, you know paper money that we have paper money mm -hmm. um, our money is treated with chemicals to keep it clean uh, in the Gambia it's covered with the sweat and dirt of everybody that's ever held it so yeah. when you take it it's damp it's almost wet with sweat and filth and grime and you think what germs am I picking up from this <laughs> <Yeah>. from this <laughs> Yeah. I wouldn't go back to the Gambia again. Okay. Not the only place. That's good to know. <laughs> I mean, I'd, I'd think twice about Tajikistan because of how ill I got. Oh my gosh. The sure. people were incredibly hospitable and kind and full of information. But um, I, I got so damn ill there. And I, after I came back to England, it lingered for weeks and weeks afterwards. Oh, that's awful. Ugh. Are there inoculations you can take beforehand to help stave off some of these? or? Well, I always go to my doctor beforehand and mm -hmm. look at where I'm going, see what jabs I need and if I'm up to date on them. But with something like dysentery, you can't really... Yeah, that that's gonna if it's going to get you, it's just plain going to get yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah, you have to take some very powerful... Um, you know, tablets to like antibiotics and things like that. Yeah, I mean, but I, I, was, I, I was taking Imodium and things like that, and it was doing very little, little good. Oh, wow. I have got I've got a friend who's recommended this stuff that the army used, and it's like gel stuff in little packets, and that's supposed to be an incredibly powerful. Um, what's the opposite of a laxative? Uh, <laughs> We're the constipation yeah. <laughs> yeah, to, to stop. stitching gel <laughs> stitching gel <laughs> gel do you remember those <laughs> yeah we didn't get that we we just doubled over in the army <laughs> oh <sighs> lovely <laughs> well well another another uh creature that we were quite interested in were the krakens um, yes hmm, that sounds really interesting i'm all about yeah. a sea monster mm -hmm. well the interesting thing about that 
the stories of these things go back hundreds of years um, to Norse maritime legends. And uh, in the 18th century, there was a Frenchman called Pierre Denis de Montfort, and he was an expert on mollusks. And he worked at the Natural History Museum in Paris. He had ties with the um, botanical gardens as well. And he wrote a number of books on mollusks. And he was sent on expeditions as far afield as Egypt. And at the time, he was one of the most celebrated scientists in Europe. And then he got talking to American whalers from Nantucket and other places who had settled in Paris. And they told him about finding these huge sucker marks on the bodies of sperm whales. And sometimes the sperm whales that they'd harpooned would vomit up huge tentacles. So he, he came up with a theory that there were enormous squid, bigger than anything known to science, and that was what was behind the Kraken legend. Mm. And he talked to uh, um, another captain whose boat had been becalmed off the coast of Angola and a couple of sailors had been lowered down to scrape barnacles off the hull when one of these huge squid appeared, snatched them from the cradle and then actually attacked the boat and only retreated when they hacked off one of its tentacles. Oh, wow. And he wrote this book on giant squid and giant octopus, postulating that they were much bigger than anything known to science. And because of that, he became a scientific pariah. He lost his job. No one would employ him. He was reduced to selling seashells. Oh, man. He was once one of the most celebrated scientists in Europe. And in the end, he, in 1820, he died of starvation in a Parisian gutter. Oh, how sad. And then in the 1850s, the first giant squid was captured and he was proven correct. Ah, oh, man, that's he sad. Wasn't, he wasn't given the kudos for that, mm -hmm. for predicting they existed. He's been almost universally forgotten by the scientific establishment. Wow. Now, did I, he... I, I call him the prophet of the Kraken. And I, well, the Kraken. One of, one of the things I'd like to do is I'd love to make a documentary about the man and his life and his works. Oh, that'd be great. Try and redeem him. Mm -hmm. Get him better known like he should be. That'd be really great. Just kind of give him his due, his just due. That's really sad. Was he the one that wrote a book? I uh, It was, uh, darn it, it's going to elude my, my memory. Um, there was an old book from the 1800s that I, I had picked up and free now but i think it was along those lines was it sistema naturae or naturae that had... I, think the, I think the name was more uh generic gotcha well, uh, anyway okay meanwhile <laughs> but they, they're all in french they're, as far as i know they've never been um translated into english hmm. oh my okay all right so, so i think you might have been thinking of a a guy called Anton Cornelius Odemans, who wrote a book on sea serpents uh, in the 19th century. I believe that's the one, yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, um, his theory that they were, that they were related to 
seals and sea lions on a much much bigger mm -hmm. wow doesn't really work because seals and sea lions are air breathers and they have to come onto land to give birth so if they were hauling up onto land and to give birth we'd have would have found their birthing cornage by now. So whatever sea serpents are, it's unlikely that they're some sort of giant seal or sea lion. Wow. Well, what about uh, kelpies, the kelpies? That's one thing I, I really enjoyed too, was seeing the, the huge statue of the, the kelpies in, in outside of Edinburgh. Well, the kelpies are from Scottish folklore, the water horse. They're supposed to be a demonic creature that takes the shape of a horse and is seen near a lake. And if anybody tries to ride it uh, and mount the kelpie, it will dash down into the water, taking the, the rider with it, and then drown them and, and eat them. Ooh. But um, they're probably just fictional. Folklore. That, that um, serve the purpose of keeping children away from deep water. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That would keep me away. <laughs> uh, this is fascinating, though. The statues are beautiful. Have you seen? Have you seen them? No, I haven't actually. Oh, it's, it's absolutely beautiful. They're huge, and they, of course, they have different lights change, and it's it's uh, yeah, it's really it was really fun. Right. Hey, June, did you have a picture of that from your visit? I probably do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like in my, just one or two, right? In my four thousand, uh, I'm four thousand pictures of just probably just Edinburgh alone and London. <laughs> I know when when you get to talking about the the Scottish and the the Irish, the Celtic, I guess that is, um, uh, the water creatures. I think of uh, Menand McLear, and think i wonder you just you go maybe he's letting his his little pets out to play some in the water a lot of them i think um are sightings of gigantic eels oh european mm -hmm. eel lives in fresh water but when it gets ready to breed it swims out into the atlantic to the sargasso sea and they breed and die and then the babies which are called leptocephalus they swim back following scent trails to the uh, ancestral freshwater of, of their, their forebears and then the system goes round again they'll grow up um, swim out to mate die and the babies come back but every so often it's thought that a, a small portion of these eels don't sexually develop and they're called eunuch eels and they get bigger and bigger and older and older and nobody knows how large or how old they get a lot of the, the sightings of the Loch Ness Monster, the Loch Moral Monster, the thing in Lake Windermere, and uh, a lot of the Irish ones sound like huge eels. And a lot of time they've been seen slithering along on land, which of course uh, eels can do that. And I, in Ireland, in fact, they call them horse eels, these giant things. They call them horse eels because they're supposed to be an eel that can stick around as a horse. Good Lord. That um, I wouldn't want to meet one. No. <laughs> no thanks. Two thousand and four, a Canadian family reported seeing an eel twenty-four feet long in Loch Ness. Wow. Damn. <laughs> have you um have you ever been to uh, Lake I believe it's Cheney in Russia um uh, and look to see what might have uh, dragged off and eaten nineteen people. 
in the last three years? That is one of my the places I most want to go to. Oh Lake wow! Channing, Lake Channing in Siberia. Something that is described as being serpentine, thirty feet long, has stalled and eaten nineteen people there. And the the local people that live around the lake are asking the government for an official investigation, and they haven't had one. The government are just <clears throat> giving them the brush off, saying, "Oh, people are just getting drunk on vodka and drowning." But uh, there's one woman who saw this creature take her son. She was on the on the shore, and her son, who was a soldier, he was about 23, I think, was in a fishing fishing from a boat. The creature ran the boat. He fell in the water. It grabbed him. They never saw him again. Another guy was out on, on another case was out with his friend fishing on a boat. The creature ran the boat, grabbed his friend, he made it to shore, oh, never man. saw his friend again. Oh. And um, the government say, oh, people are just drowning. But it's the kind of drowning where bits of the drowning victims wash up with big teeth marks on them. It's like, yeah. it's like the script to a horror film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. It really um, is. Uh, yeah. Well, no one has been out there uh, to investigate, probably, and it would make a tremendous documentary. Now, I'll try to get people interested in, in financing something else, but no one will, will go for it. And it's not the only Siberian lake. Uh, lake Labininka is supposed to have uh, some monstrous creature in it, and um, the people there say it's flipped over. The, the rafts of nomads and, and devoured them, or they've chased um, deer into the lake, and it's come and grabbed the deer and pulled the deer down. Lake Verocha is another one where there's supposed to be one of these huge creatures, and just nobody has gone into a serious investigation. You could do it over the summer, all three lakes. Um, you could have mini sub, uh, submarines, you could have underwater cameras. You could have boys with bait floating underneath them, trying right. to trap what's ever say, do sonar, the whole nine yards, and it would make a tremendous documentary. Oh, but wow. uh, I've been trying to get people interested in it for years, and no one, nobody's interested. Nobody wants to know. And when you look at the garbage that's on television, there's so many channels, yeah. and you hop from channel to channel to channel, and it's just mind-numbing, soul-destroying, Yep. Yep, the I more, agree. <laughs> I agree. The more banal it is, the more program makers want the more banal subject is, the more program makers want to want to um, make shows about it. Right. I mean if you'd have told me twenty years ago that one of the most popular shows on television would be a bunch of idiots in a house being filmed for twenty four hours. That's so true. <laughs> yeah, I can't watch those shows. The dumbing down of the world, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, there's something in those lakes killing people. There's yes. a mystery there that needs investigation. But no one's interested. And I've had people in the past, I've had people say, oh, well, we'd like to do a documentary with you, but uh, you must guarantee us that we'll find the creature. Guarantee you. Oh my, hell are you gosh. Be <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> oh, about 15 years ago, someone from the BBC approached us and said they wanted to come on one of our expeditions and that, that we would pay for it. <laughs> I'd make a documentary about it. Mm-hmm. Mm. 
wrong. <laughs> wow. Yeah, you got to come up with the funding at least, guys. Come on, work with us. <laughs> um, well, moving on to like North America, I know we've got the uh, Champ, Champ, Champy in Lake Champlain, oh. and uh, uh, now like is is the Og uh, I'm gonna probably oh, Og is that typical Thank you for of that. North American <laughs> lake type monsters? <laughs> yes, quite quite typical. And then off the the um, west coast, you've got um, Cadbarosaurus, or as the Indians used to call it, Hyatipolis. Mm -hmm. The Great Pacific Sea Dragon, which is a serpentine, reptilian-looking creature, anywhere from 40 to 100 feet long, that moves in a sort of vertical, um, looping motion. It has this horse-like head, spines down the back. But it's interesting to note that very similar creatures were seen in Along Bay in the late 19th, early 20th century, in the years just before World War One, the French Navy had a number of encounters with these creatures, and they described them very similar to Cadbarosaurus, as as you know, 40 to 100 feet long, spines down the back. They said they'd shoot vapor from their nostrils, which is almost certainly that the warm, like a, the way a whale. Oh, wow. a blowhole. Um, it's not water, it's, it's actually warm air that's shooting out of it. These things would shoot the vapour from the nostrils. And um, some of the admirals were scoffing at what the captains had, had told them. So they went to investigate, and the admirals saw these things as well. And there's masses of records, um, French naval records, that have been seeing these things, and even firing at them with gunboats. Um, and and the, the shells having no effect on the, on the creature's thick skin. And some of them were, were seen for prolonged periods of time. Um, very close, some of them as well. And then on the opposite side, the opposite coast, uh, on the, the east coast, in the 18th and early 19th centuries, there were sea serpent sightings all around uh, New England and then the Massachusetts area. And once again, Masses of people saw them. There were there were mass sightings, whole crowds of people on land, um, whole crews of boats and ships saw these things. And then, sort of in in the the mid nineteenth century, they died off. Whether it was due to disturbance that they the sightings from the uh, the the east coast died off, but the ones on the west coast of the U.S. and Canada are still going on today. Fantastic. Wow. And the uh, the French admirals and captains, when they were writing their reports, time and again, they compared these things to Asian dragons. And they said, this is what we think the Asian dragon is based on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there was a, a good, good extensive bunch of uh, information. I was busy reading the book and Googling what these things looked like in it. Um, next time, could you add pictures? <laughs> Well, I wanted pictures in the book, but you know, I wanted pictures and I wanted um, uh, an, in, an index and I wanted um, I wanted notes as well, you know, numbered notes. But they said it, it wasn't there 
you know, their house style. So I tried to make do with a big mm -hmm. bibliography. Well, it's a really great bibliography because I've looked up some of these um, writers and their different books as well. But um, on the subject of dragons, um, I'm probably going to mispronounce this term. But could you explain gigantothermy, how it pertains to large reptiles? And since reptiles would be cold-blooded, how would they be able to survive a Siberian winter? Well, gigantothermy, uh, it's when an animal gets very big, it loses heat um, a lot less than an animal that's very small. Uh, a mouse loses heat much more quickly than an elephant. Oh, okay. It's a sheer bulk and body size. That's why dinosaurs could live in quite cool places. They didn't just live in the tropics, they lived in, in sort of cool places as well. And also, um, it's not impossible that some reptiles that we don't know about have evolved full, full on warm bloodedness rather than just gigantothermy. One of the reasons the dinosaurs may have been so successful is because they were gigantotherms, so they have had. The activity of the mammal, but the economy of a reptile, because they were not actively warm-blooded. They were warm-blooded by dint of size. And also things like the great white shark, that is found, it's a cold-blooded animal, but it's found in, in very cold, cool waters. And it's it keeps its body warm by constant movement. Uh, the leatherback turtle, the world's largest turtle, the size of a small car, as is, you know, found in, in what cool European waters sometimes. Very good, thank you. Um, the now, moving uh, back to uh, Europe and basically France, um, the beast of Gavadin has always really intrigued me. Um, could you expound upon on him a little bit for us and our the listeners? The Beast of Jardavan. Oh, thank you. Jardavan. Jardavan is in sort of central southern France. It's a province of central southern France. And in the year of 1764, an animal turned up there and started killing humans and livestock. Wow. The first report of it, it attacked a, a girl tending some... Uh, cattle, and the mm -hmm. cattle sort of drove it back into the forest, charged it and drove it back into the forest. But a couple of days later, it attacked uh, a shepherdess and killed her and devoured her, and so started a three-year nightmare for Jardin. At the time, they'd just come out of the um, out of a war, a very costly war with England that they'd lost, and there, were, there was a series of very harsh winters, and then the, this creature that became known as the Beast turned up and over three years it killed and ate something like 118 people oh my gosh livestock now uh, the king at the time got wind of this and he sent his best wolf hunters and their hounds to track it down the hounds wouldn't follow or couldn't follow the trail whatever it was ran rings around the huntsman mm -hmm. carried on killing people so he replaced the, the, the two wolf hunters uh, with his gun bearer. And his gun bearer went after it. 
his gun bearer couldn't capture. And eventually, after three years, the sightings just petered out. It vanished, whatever it was. Uh, over the years, people have tried to say, oh, it was just a very large wolf. Or some people said maybe it was an escaped hyena or it was a wolf-dog hybrid. A couple of people had actually shot things that they thought was the beast of Jardavan. Um, one man shot uh, uh, an exceptionally big wolf and it was displayed at Versailles as the beast of Jardavan. Huh. And the king thought, oh yeah, well that's the end of the troubles, but it wasn't. Because the people who had been attacked and survived said, this is not what attacked me. And the killings carried on. And then uh, another guy, a guy called Jean Chastel, shot a wolf, big wolf-dog hybrid and also claimed that it was the beast of Jardavan, but it wasn't because people were saying that's not what attacked us, and uh, the, the killings carried on. Now, there have been two very good recent books on the Beast of Jardavan, and one of them was written by a uh, German monologist, and he's looked at some of the contemporary reports, because a lot of the reports were collected and kept um, uh, by two clerics at the time. And so we've got these contemporary reports that were written when the attacks were happening and you build up an idea of what this beast looked like and how it killed and it was supposed to be about the size of a donkey has reddish brown hair a long tail as thick as a human arm with a tusk at the end it made a moaning roaring sound <laughs> and it had a broad muzzle full of sharp teeth and it killed not just by biting but by clawing as well uh, one woman, when it grabbed hold of her son, she leapt on its back, so it must have been very big for her to leap on its back, and tried to make it let go by squeezing its testicles. Oh, and the, wow. be the beast of Jardavan dropped the son, turned around and scalped her with its claws. Oh. Um, and it would also it would kill large animals like cows by jumping on their back, pulling them down, and then putting pressure on the throat and strangling them by biting the throat and strangling them to death. And it it did this with a number of humans as well. Wow. It and almost one sounds of them, like a, a lion. I mean, it, it just almost sounds like a lion with the tail and, and how big it was and everything. It just makes me wonder. It sounds like a lion for a reason, because that's exactly what it was. There, ah. is, no, hmm. there is no other animal that fits that suite of physical description and how it killed. And people say, well, <clears throat> why didn't they know it was a lion? Why didn't they... Um, say it was a lion at the time. Well, the thing is that um, people in rural France, peasants in rural France, were only familiar with lions from storybooks. Right. Where they drew them with full manes. <clears throat> now, a male lion often won't get a full mane until it's, you know, four or five years old. So this was almost certainly a sub-adult male lion. We know it's a male because it had testicles. Um, <clears throat> but also, sometimes male lions don't develop um, manes at all. There were two man-eating lions um, called the man-eaters of Savo, uh, and when a, a railway was being built in Kenya in um, the late 19th century, they, they killed a number of, of railway workers, and they didn't have manes. They were maneless for some reason. But then you might ask, well, where did the lion come from? Because they're not native to France. Well, <coughs> at the time, in the 18th century, <coughs> rich gentry 
we're starting to have private menageries for having their own private zoos. There's one at Versailles, and a lot of the big country houses <coughs> of the rich had their own private little zoos. And there's quite a thriving trade in exotic animals. And the, the big marketplace for these exotic animals was something like 40, 50 miles away from um, Chardavan. Yeah. And if you look into the history of it, there were other cases, much less famous, but there were other cases where beasts had been on the rampage. Um, some of them after the Beast of Jardavan, uh, some of them before it. So it, it, it's likely that some of these exotic creatures um, from these menageries had got loose before and, and you know, killed a load of people and livestock. <coughs> right. They were. Well, the Tower of London. I mean, look at look at all the beasts that they had. Uh, you know, yeah, back yeah. back Long. during the ages. And what what are your views about the um, was the be the Beast of Dartmoor? The the people who have that. seen. I've seen that myself. You have? Oh my gosh! I saw it. I was looking for it. I was on a a bus, a coach going from Exeter to Bristol. And just on the outskirts of Exeter and some fields, I happened to glance over and saw a, a full-grown puma standing in a field. And I know many people that have seen big cats in Britain. Now, it might sound bizarre, but up until the mid-70s, anybody could start a zoo in Britain. If you had the money and the land, you could start a zoo. And you could buy just about any, any animal you wanted. The pet department in Harrods the big famous store in London. They sold gorillas and oh. oh my gosh. Same. <laughs> there were a lot of these little zoos around and a lot of just privately owned big cats and other exotic creatures in people's backyards. And it all changed in the mid-70s when a lion, I think he was in Birmingham, um, attacked a kid. Mm. So they, they brought in this legislation where you had to you could keep them securely and you had to pay a big license fee and most of them were just let go oh, wow we've got black leopards and humors and lynx living and almost certainly living and breeding in britain because you know a, a big cat lives for about 15 years and sightings of these things go back to the 1960s right. also examined a kill um a kill in north devon where a sheep had been killed by having its neck bone dislocated and then the fleece and the skin was peeled back from the bones very neatly like you'd peel the skin of a banana or you'd peel the skin of a fish off and then uh all the the heart the lungs the liver and all that were eaten and the flesh was stripped very cleanly from the bones the bones weren't cracked and chewed in the way that dogs would have done it mm -hmm. and it was it was a typical big cat kill. Oh, oh wow. good lord! <laughs> since since we're on the subject of dogs and cats, and what is England's situation with the black dogs? And we've heard about these giant creatures that stalk people in woods. Is it just legend, like what what old Chuck or Black Chuck, I think his name is, or yeah, is there Black something Shuffle, with the black dog? Barger, the Bargeist, yeah, Padfoot. It's got. They have different names in different counties, but just about every county in Britain has legends of black dogs, hmm. huge spectral hounds with glowing eyes, and they're supposed to be portents of death. And people still report them from time to time. They're one of the 
what I call the, uh, the, the monster archetypes. There are certain archetypes you will find in every, every culture. Um, dragons, monstrous dogs, hairy giants, little people, huge birds, right. and, and monstrous cats. And you'll find these archetypes again and again and again. And the dragon is the most ancient. It goes back at least 40,000 years. Wow. Interesting. Incredibly interesting. That it makes me think of the uh, the Native American Thunderbirds out mm. in the southwest. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. and you have in the Middle East, you have the Roch, which is supposed oh, to be yeah. a huge bird. Um, in Britain, you have the, the, the Owl Man in Cornwall. You have the Tengu in Japan, the Garuda in Asia, all over. And, then, and if you're talking about dragons, Britain alone, which is quite a small country, has about 100 dragon legends spread, spread throughout it and they're found in every single culture in the world everyone right that's i've i've got that on my kindle um ready to be read your your book on dragons dragons more than a myth mm -hmm. yes yeah that was the first book i ever wrote oh wow oh yeah <laughs> so i guess we could take a moment because we haven't talked about your approach to writing the books what inspires you to writing the books I mean, what what gives you the itch to crank out 200-plus pages on cryptids? Well, if you're talking about this new one, Adventures in Cryptozoology, I was actually approached by Mango Publishing to do it. They, they wanted an introduction to cryptozoology, so I wrote this book. Um, they chose the title Adventures in Cryptozoology. I was going to call it Cryptozoology, Searching for Living Monsters. Hmm. Uh, but they pay such a, a damn good uh, <laughs> yeah, you, uh, yeah. I'm not going to argue. <laughs> I don't blame you. And you got a commission because we all bought like a book each. So. <laughs> right, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. But uh, originally it was going to be one, one volume, but it was too large, so they split it into two volumes. Volume two is out um, oh, late this year or early next year. But this first volume is... is it gives an introduction and looks at all the creatures that used to be cryptids but have been discovered and found to be real, like giant squid and Komodo dragons and things. And it looks at all the scientists that have been involved in it over the years, as far back as Pierre Denis de Montfort, right up to the modern day. Then it looks at modern day sightings of dragons, which are there, there are uh, a surprising amount. Then it looks at lake monsters, then sea serpents. And it goes on to uh, mystery apes and hominins. And then finally, there's a chapter uh, that's what I call the magic zoo, which is mm -hmm. stuff that doesn't really fit in anywhere else. It's like uh, unicorns, which may have been based on a uh, ancient species of, of one-horned antelope. And it looks at uh, the possible survival of those in historic times. Uh, creatures that are from legend like the griffin and the, the basilisk and the salamander and what was behind them. Then... Mm -hmm more modern things like the Mongolian death worm and, and the beast of Jodhavar. And volume two uh, is going to look at giant creatures like giant crocodiles and giant anacondas that have been um, seen around the world. And it's going to look at supposedly extinct animals that might still be around, like the Tasmanian wolf and the prehistoric giant brown sloth and supposed dinosaurs in Africa, which I think are more likely to be gigantic lizards, gigantic monitor lizards rather than tree 
Mm -hmm. Dinosaurs. And then in the second half of, of volume two, it, uh, I recount my own adventures, all of my um, many trips around the world, monster hunting. And finally, it, it looks at um, what you want to what to do if you want to um, make your own cryptozoological expedition from scratch. How to go about it? How do you how do you um, set up Start, a, yeah. and, and run a, a cryptozoological expedition? Okay. You know, have you ever thought about taking people out <clears throat> like that? And uh, yes, you know, yes, I have. Yeah, a friend and, and I have thought of setting up a company. We call it Crypto Safaris or something, and we would go to say Sumatra or South America or Tasmania with a small group of paying people to look for these things. But we haven't got that far with it yet. I mean, uh, the insurance would probably be right. Oh yeah. Think about those things, yeah. But um, it's something we're we're looking into, like the viability of it at the minute. Right, as you make people sign their own thing, saying you are responsible for your own self. <laughs> True. <laughs> Could be. It's hard at the minute to find funding to uh, to do my own expedition. So, Richard, I wanted to ask you about this. This is one of your earlier books, but I'm a big fan of it. It's the Great Yokai Encyclopedia. Could you tell us a little bit about how unique Japanese, I don't, should I call them monsters? Japanese. Yeah, well, broadly, yokai is very broadly ghosts and monsters in Japan. Uh, there's odd bits of folklore all around the world. Every culture has them. I mean, in Britain, there are stories, so take the stories of phantom chickens, uh, phantom bags of soot, and silly things like that. But in Japan, they must have been off their tits. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> it has the weirdest folklore of anywhere in the world. Mm -hmm, that's true. You've yes. got things like giant bipedal rabbits that dig up corpses and eat their livers. <laughs> I never heard of that. Pigs that steal your genitals. Oh my! <laughs> that would be giant, sad. <laughs> giant sea cucumbers that grow out of girls' knickers that are thrown into the sea and attack ships. Oh my! <laughs> got raccoon, raccoon dogs that have shape-shifting testicles they can use as weapons. What? It's <laughs> <laughs> a real animal. This is a real animal. It's called the tanuki. <laughs> Folklore, the raccoon dog of Tanuki, all sorts of folklore attached to it, and it has shape shifting testicles. And there's one, one story that of a Tanuki that disguised his his bollocks as a um, a tea room. People <laughs> and some people came into the tea room and were drinking tea in the tea room, and some of them one of them knocked some hot hot ash from his pipe onto the floor, and it scorched the, the Tanuki's testicles. And yeah, <laughs> <laughs> wow, <laughs> that's amazing. I, yeah. I I have to wonder if there were some bad trips going on. <laughs> yeah, what kind of tea was they? Yeah, no, what kind of shiitake mushrooms were you yeah. gobbling there? <laughs> <laughs> There's lots of things to do with hair as well, eating hair or mm. hair growing in weird places. Yeah. Well, I mean, licking. a lot of things with the ghost movies. Yeah, too, I was going to say, was, is that, that yeah, come. is that Uri? Is how do you pronounce that Uri? 
your eye and ghosts, yeah. 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 Because so the... A... Go ahead. So there's, there's a creature called Tenjiname that has this great long tongue. It's got this horse-like face, this great long tongue, and it just licks the ceiling and leaves a big wet patch on the ceiling. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so if you have a wet patch on your ceiling, you better go back outside. Yeah. The ghost of a woman that wanders around in the rain licking her hand. And there's another, uh, there's another creature that licks all the filth out of poorly kept public baths. Oh. Oh, and no. when it comes to like the the Japanese ghosts and craziness, there is the faceless woman ghosts. I can't remember what the Japanese word is for it, but um, yes. uh, they're thought to be tanukis playing tricks on people. Gotcha. Yeah, they don't have they have no face and they turn around they just be a blank face. Wow, that'd be terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I see here you've written uh, two horror anthologies, Green Unpleasant Land, which from 2013, and Ooh, Hayaku Tales of Japanese Horror. Which means 100 stories. Yeah, um, I love the horror genre, um, but I think it's been poorly served at the minute. I'm so sick of bloody vampires and zombies. Yeah, me too. Sense <laughs> of death. So the first one, Green and Pleasant Land, was based on British folklore. So it has stuff from British folklore like dragons and black dogs. These things were the earth pounds from Scotland, which are these weird rodents that are supposed to burrow into coffins and eat the dead. Um, goblins, a unicorn, a basilisk. But they're all put in the horror genre, uh, fairly contemporary. And then Hayaku Monogatari is, uh, it, it comes from, in the Edo period, there used to be a, a party game called Hayaku Monogatari where you'd light um, 100 candles and everyone would tell a ghost story and blow out one of the candles. And when the final candle went out, uh, a blue spirit was supposed to appear in the mirror. And it actually got banned in the end as this ghost story telling. But I, I wanted to write a three-volume uh, set of horror stories with, uh, you know, oh. sorry, a four-volume set of horror stories with 25 stories in each volume. But I've only only got around to writing the first one so far. Oh. But I just wanted to showcase how weird Japanese folklore was and put some of these in, in into horror stories because there's so few horror stories um, in, in the Western world anyway that have... Um, Japanese so are there in other parts of the world i mean it seems like you're really fascinated by the japanese ones but is there another culture stories you'd like to bring to life as well um i'll have to think about that there are odd odd things around the world in, in the, uh, in the philippines there's a thing called the mananganal which is sort of vampire where the head leaves the body. It's always a woman. Oh, yeah. And the head leaves the body and flies around at night, dangling all the entrails behind it like tentacles. And then yep. at night and, and in the morning, like it, whereas a, a, a Western vampire would go back to the coffin, the head goes back to the body. Oh, wow. The way to defeat it is to destroy the body or hide the body so it can't return to it. I think I've seen that movie. Actually, yeah, there was a Japanese movie. Yeah, there was a. I saw a Filipino movie with the head detaching. 
Uh, something road the the filipinos do really great horror movies i gotta say yeah they really do (laughs) in korean yes in aboriginal folklore which is what this weird frog red frog-like creature with suckers on its and it will it won't kill you it'll get a hold of you and swallow you oh wow you back up and you'll be changed into another Yaramai Yahoo. I gotta look, yeah, let me... Good lord, okay. <laughs> um, you know I'm looking that one up. I know you are too. <laughs> yeah. Like, I'm definitely gonna read that, read those. <laughs> if you hear typing, that's me doing the search. Uh, I did find it. Yeah, yeah. Let me drop this into the chat for the Yay. listeners. And for me. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's a, Wiki- it's a Wikipedia. It's a Wikipedia. Yeah. Entry. Hey, work with me. Okay, now <laughs> enter. <laughs> Technology. I love it till I hate it. Well, Rich, uh, where did you learn about all of these creatures? Just reading all the time? or Reading. That's how I learned about zoology as well. Because when I was a child at school, it wasn't taught. They taught biology, but it was only human biology. We never thought about the natural world. And what I learned from school has never been any use to me, aside from the basics of reading and writing. The things that have been used to me in my life are the things I researched myself, because I've been a voracious reader ever since I was a child. And it's the stuff I've got from books, not from what teachers taught me. Mm-hmm. That's, that's where I got all the useful information. And stories from what... Uh... I'm sure when you go to these places and everything, and and the the townspeople want to tell you their stories, mm. that's just fascinating. I almost asked if you if you record them as you're going, so you can recall them and in, and in, in how they're told. But they're probably in in languages other than than English. And... We, film them <laughs> and we, have, we have an interpreter, and we film them. Oh, mm-hmm. take notes afterwards and write it up. We always write up our expeditions and expedition reports. And we have made um, some documentary films ourselves. We put them up on YouTube. If you look up CFZ TV, that's the three letters CFZ TV, mm-hmm. you'll find um, some of our trips to Mongolia and India and Russia. Definitely. Oh, like that. That up. I have found it. I am pasting the channel <laughs> in right now. Thank you. All right. Well, we're uh, we're just almost at the end of our two hours. Um, wh- where are you bound to next? Do you know, Richie? Uh, next June, I'm due to go back to Mongolia for another search for the Black Whale. Whether Ooh. I do anything before that or not, um, don't know yet. Uh, I might be going to the Congo look for Napoleon Bembo. That's up in the air at the minute. That's not certain. Mm-hmm. But um, Mongolia is the next one that I know about. Neat. Can you tell me a little more about the death worms? Um, I, I kind of, I was skimming. I was reading as fast as I could to try to get through and, and everything. Um, intend to go back and read more, but at a, at a slower pace. I like to call it Alroy Hoi Hoi. Which means intestine worm, because they say it looks like a great length of cow's intestine. And it's supposed to be sort of shaped like a draft excluder or a salami. 
um, anywhere from two to five feet long as you are. Mm-hmm. And it comes up to you know, the surface of the Gobi after rainfall. And uh, Roy Chapman Andrews, the guy they based Indiana Jones on, he was an American paleontologist. He was one of the first Westerners to write about it. And there are stories about it spitting a corrosive yellow saliva that acts like acid and generating blasts of electricity that can kill full-grown camels. And when I went over there, I travelled for about a thousand miles through the deserts of the Gobi and talked to many nomad witnesses. And they say that the electricity of throwing lightning, they call it, they say that doesn't happen, that's just folklore. But they're terrified of it because they think it can spit this poison. And um, a sighting of a death worm can throw a whole community into panic and they'll pack up all their the gurs, their circular tents that they, they live in, and all their livestock and move out of the area. One guy told me about seeing one of these things in his youth while he was tending to camels and and uh, goats and his parents just moved wow. everything of the area they were so scared of it. I mean, one guy had seen it way back in the 1930s and a guy had seen it just the year before we were there. And they're all describing the same animal. And it sounds to me like a, an amphisbana or worm lizard. These are not worms at all, they're reptiles. And they're related to snakes and lizards, but they're um, distinct from both. If you put in um, the red worm lizard into a, uh, a search engine, you'll get what they look like. And they have this very sausage-like shape. Oh, yeah. I, th- I think the death worm is an undiscovered species of large worm lizards, and I think its death-dealing um, capabilities are just folklore that have been grafted onto a, what would be a probably fairly harmless animal. Wow. If I saw one of those, and it was 12 foot long and probably bigger around than, than my arm or whatever, it might cause a heart attack. That could yep. be where the death <laughs> is coming from. <laughs> it could be. Most, they're supposed to be two to five feet long, and most okay. of them we, we talked to said they were about two feet long. I'm putting a picture in the chat. This thing is not cute. No. Oh. <laughs> not cute. <laughs> well, ladies and gentlemen, I am afraid we have come to the end of the show. And wow. it has been an amazing night. And I don't think yes, the chat has. has been this active and loaded with <laughs> pictures and details about cryptids uh, or anything we've covered before. So, Richard, thank you very much. Um, well, yeah, and if you want to pick up my book, Adventures in Cryptozoology, it's uh, available on Amazon now and uh, in most good bookshops. And yes. If any of you want to write a uh, review for Amazon for it, I'd be very oh, yeah. grateful. Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah, for sure. We'll definitely do that. You can get it on Amazon in the States. It's going for about 12 bucks. U.S. the um, Kindle version is going for about ten bucks U.S. Yes, uh, I left a review already, so you're you're good. I yes, think it went to Thank you. Yes, I saw that. That was very kind of you. And that, that's what helps the the uh, authors to to get recognition and get mm-hmm. up there in the search engine. So everybody yeah. go buy a book and leave at least a, just a couple word review if mm-hmm. that's all you can. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And the money that I make from this book is going to be going back into further research. Sure. Oh, perfect. And not being spent on. Uh, Cider and cheap tart. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, treat yourself a little anyway. Yeah. So, Richard, Richard, you said the next volume will come out at the end of this year or early next year? 
or early next year. I haven't got a release date yet, but it'll okay. be Adventures in Cryptozoology Volume 2. Okay, and it'll focus on giant monsters. And, yeah, giant crocodiles, giant snakes. Giant, things that are presumed to be extinct, but might still be around, like the Tasmanian wolf and the giant brown spider. Mm-hmm. And then it'll look at my own adventures, and then finally it'll tell you how to set up your own Cryptozoological Expedition. Perhaps we could persuade you to come back and, and talk to us more at that time. I'd love yes, that. Yeah. Absolutely. And then if Fantastic. anyone wants to get a hold of you, and I'll drop these in the chat as well, how can our listeners and, and the people that get the book, how can they get a hold of you? Yeah, well, my uh, you can go to the, the website, which is www.csz.org.uk, and I'm on richard at cfz.org.uk all right then well, thank you thank, thank you, you so much again yeah. this has been a great uh, yeah. it's been fantastic so, talking to you so interesting i just love it i love the stories mm-hmm. well i've got to head to bed because it's four o'clock in the morning <laughs> I know. that's thank true you thank so you so much we appreciate it so much very much so. thank you have a good night or morning. Morning, yes. Good morning. Uh, sleep. Have a good yeah, sleep. Have, have a good, good sleep. Night. Have a good sleep. <laughs> so, Wendy, June, yes. parting words. Well, um, next week we have uh, we have the Malicks, uh, Jennifer and Kevin Malick from Upper Wisconsin. Uh, they're golly, she is a psychic demonologist, and he is a uh, uh, his historian, I believe, you know, for ghosts and and different parapsychology type deals, they do have a uh, paranormal investigation team and all kinds of different uh, things. Um, I believe he was a a uh, writer or an investigator for Mufon hmm. as well. Nice. And June might be on her own, most Actually- likely. I yep. think uh, I think Medea might be joining me. Oh, fantastic! Yay! Be a co-host, so you know that'll be fun for yeah, y'all. So cool. Yeah, I've got a little job, and Jacob, uh, I believe, has a little job, and so uh, we'll be taking care of little jobs. I've got a little <laughs> trip. I'll be I'll be around. I've got a vacation. Yeah, it'll be fun. Yeah, it will be fun. Um, June, your parting words. Well, um, I just hope everybody has a an amazing week. Do something spooky and fun for yourself. That's very important. Absolutely. <laughs> and again, one last thank you to Richard Freeman, the yes, author of you. Adventures in Cryptozoology, Hunting for that Yetis, Mongolian Deathworms, and Other Not-So-Mythical Creatures, Volume 1. It's available on Amazon right now, so go get a copy. And again, one last parting thank you to Carly for letting us invade her space. And fill it up with monsters and cryptids and other good stuff. Yay. Uh, oh, my. Oh, my. Uh, and with that, our outro track is Down Dark Waters by Jennifer B., I think. Isn't that right, Wendy? Yes, Jennifer B. and the Groove. All righty. So have a good night, everybody. And thank you for tuning in an hour earlier. It was a great show. Take it care. It was. Bye. Good night. Bye. Good night. I went down 
into the water My lover Not far behind His eyes on into the dark waters And even darker thought was growing in my mind Growing in my mind He said he'd love me And he said he'd keep me And that the key to his heart was chained around my neck Well, I tore that chain off with my angry fingers And in the deep water I placed it around his neck We went down, 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 dark Down, 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 down below My more pain Ooh, and no more sorrow And broken heart Ever have to know And it hurts sometimes Going down. 